Amen. What a wonderful prayer. Thank you, Steve and worship team. Good morning, Wellspring Covenant Church and friends. It's good to be with you this morning and see some new and some old faces together. Um, not referring to age, just how long it's been since I saw you. <laughs> um, so one thing I've noticed as I've gotten older is that nobody likes admitting when they're wrong. Doesn't seem to be like a fun thing to do. I mean, my kids definitely don't seem to enjoy it. Sometimes we kind of have to gently and figuratively twist their arms to get them to apologize to each other. I know I don't like admitting when I'm wrong or I've been in the wrong. I think pretty much universally across the board, people don't like discovering they're in the wrong or that, even worse, they're perpetuating wrong. Maybe it's to avoid feelings of guilt or maybe wiggle out of liability issues, but for whatever reasons, we humans have invented a lot of non-apologies for when we're caught and we're wrong. Non-apologies that don't admit any particular wrongdoing. I have a list of them here. Um, these are not comprehensive. These are just a few of the ones that exist. And I've said many of them. I'll go first. This is one I've said more than once. I'm sorry if you were hurt. Ooh, have you heard that one? I've said that one before. This next one is used by a lot of politicians. Wrongs were done. I think this was used by the Bill Clinton administration um, regarding human radiation experiments that had been done in the 1950s. And they did this whole commission, and it turns out that they even injected like 18 people with plutonium. And so wrongs were done. Ah, and then here's another one on the other side of the aisle. Um, mistakes were made. And this is what Ronald Reagan said after the U.S. was caught selling weapons to Iran and then using the profits to free hostages and fund rebel groups in Nicaragua. Mistakes were made. People actually use that non-apology all the time. This next one, you might have heard this one or used this one. We regret what happened. Have you heard that one? Yes, I think the last time I saw this was like the Ukrainian prime minister said this after young protesting civilians were killed by riot police. We regret what happened. Last week, in the wake of the tragic and horrific building collapse in Miami Beach, there's been a lot of people talking about it, but no one apologizing. And I think this is because no one wants to take that responsibility. There's town managers and condo board members and consultants, building officials. Everyone's deeply troubled, but no one's sorry. No one wants to take that weight, that culpability on themselves. I think it's because one of the weighty truths of our lives, whether we can admit it to ourselves or to others or not, is that something is fundamentally wrong. The British mystery writer and Christian apologist Dorothy Sayers, she was the child and ordained minister, and she popularized the detective novel in the early 20th century, along with Agatha Christie. The two of them were contemporaries. And she wrote about a deep interior dislocation in the center of the human personality. It's almost as if there's a vertebrae or two or three that's twisted out of place in the backbone of our world and in the backbone of our lives. There's this great little Calvin and Hobbes comic that um, makes me chuckle, and little boy Calvin is here. He says, everyone I know needs what I'm selling. 
he's selling a swift kick in the butt. <laughs> right? Something is fundamentally out of place. And scripture talks about this fundamental wrongness as sin and does not mince words about it, even though we sometimes do. Now, you might wonder, why are we talking about sin now? This is our, our fifth week in Wellspring's summer series, Cruciformed, as we're talking about what the cross of Jesus means and how we can live and learn from its shadow. Last week, we saw how Jesus' completed work on the cross has ripple effects to our day and challenges us to love God and love people. Um, the week before that, we discussed the justice of God, how God's justice is always restorative, and God just parents us by running after us to rectify what is wrong. Pastor Cheryl movingly spoke the week before that, showing how cross, how Jesus went to the godless place on the cross, the place of pain and forsakenness, so that no place in all creation can be out of the bounds of God's presence and intervention in our care too. The week before that, we rooted our series in the truth that there is power to shape our world and our lives in the cross of Jesus. But we haven't talked about sin yet. Why are we finally now getting to this topic? Well, good question. Thanks for asking. For some of you, your conversations about faith might have begun with a subject of sin. Right? Some of our old school tracks, the ABCs of faith, it begins with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Admit your need. I think actually the Romans 3.23, the um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I think that was the first verse I remember memorizing in Sunday school when I was a kid. But the reason why we didn't begin with the subject of sin is simply because God's story does not begin there. Right, the Old Testament scriptures open with this picture of God's really good creation and God's good intent for shalom. Remember, shalom is the complete and whole harmonious world, full of right being and rightly ordered relationships between humans and God and the land and each other. So that's how the, how the scriptures open. And then the New Testament, the book of Mark, which is the first one written, it opens with the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. God's restorative one is here. So here at Wellspring, we didn't begin our series uh, about the cross on the subject of sin because we wanted to start our story where God starts the story with God's loving and saving action. But today... It's time to turn our attention towards what ails the human race. The alien power that God's original movement of love bumps up against sin. So with that in mind, let's read our guiding text for today. There's worship notes um, on YouTube in the comment section as well as Facebook. And there's also some right in our, right our front entry area in case you want to follow along that way. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to read the whole section later on today or during the week, the whole section is from 1 Corinthians um, 15, 1 through 11. We're going to just highlight the beginning of it. And so the context is that Paul is sharing with the church in Corinth the good news. Verse 1, he says this. Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. And he gets a little chatty. So feel free to read that whole section. This is what I want to highlight from his message. Verse 3, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. 
Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. This is one of the earliest affirmations of faith we have is in this section of scripture. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. So here we have the connection between the cross, Jesus' death, and sin. It's permanently and emphatically fixed in our biblical text. And sin and death, they're kind of related to each other. We see the two of them as going together all throughout scripture. We see in James 1, if you sin, when, you, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. So sin and death are linked. The Apostle Paul talks about the wages of sin is death. So if you sow sin, you'll reap death. So these two things are together, not just in the New Testament, but as we'll see in a couple weeks, in the Old Testament as well with the sacrificial system. And I think Pastor Cheryl gets that sermon in a couple weeks. So if we were to zoom out, though, and look at Scripture as a whole, when we talk about the subject of sin, we'd see that sin throughout Old and New Testaments is anything that goes against the law of love. The theologian Cornelius Plantinga Jr. in his book, Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he defines sin as this, anything that disrupts the balance of shalom. Anything that disrupts the balance of shalom. This is anything that interferes with the very good of how God created our world to be. Sin interferes with this. That's why God warns us against it. Because God is for your thriving. God is for human and creation thriving. For shalom. And therefore, God is against sin. Now, there's a whole bunch of different ways that people in the New Testament and theologians talk about sin. So I'm just going to give us a brief overview here. And um, the first way that the New Testament, and this is just in any order, this is just as it came up to me, um, the New Testament talks about sin is sin as contagion. Um, Paul in Romans 12 uses this picture of sin entering the world through one person and infecting the many. I think the reason why this one's on my mind is because of COVID, right? So we have contagion on our mind. It's this insidious thing. It entered the world through one person and we all have it. You could call Adam patient zero, if you will. Sin is also something we are in, kind of like a bog or a smog. Jesus uses this analogy of being in sin in the book of John chapter 8. We are in sin. And not only are we in it, but sin is also a power because Jesus says if you sin, you're a slave to sin, which means sin is like a power over you or over us. So in the book of Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says that whoever you are, whether you identify as Greek or as Jew, you are under the power of sin. And Jesus uses this picture in one of his, um, in one of his parables, this picture of a strong man. Sin and the enemy of our souls, Satan, as a strong man who yet can be overcome by someone stronger, who is, of course, Jesus. Now, sin, there's lots of ways to talk about it, but it's also a really sticky subject, and not just because it pulls on our own heartstrings, not just because we are wounded people who have also wounded people, but sin is also a sticky subject for those of us that believe that God is good and powerful, right? If God is good and powerful, how can a powerful God permit sin to exist? How can a good God allow it? 
Theologians throughout church history have really wrestled with this and tried to make sense of it in relation to God and come up with these, these arguments called theodicies. And I'm about to give us one of them right now, but I'm also going to just say that the book that we're reading along with, um, Crucifixion, Understanding the Cross of Christ by Fleming Rutledge, she basically says that none of these um, theodicies that we come up with, none of these ways of trying to explain sin, suffering, God's goodness, and God's power, none of them are ultimately like completely convincing to her. And she is a wonderful Christian who loves God, who knows the scriptures well. And for her, just acknowledging the fact that there is never going to be a complete answer that 100% satisfies us this side of heaven. And I tend to agree with her, so I'm just stating that. I'm going to give us um, one theodicy from St. Augustine, but at the end of the day, sin is this thing that we live with, that we wrestle with, and that is not fully explained. Now, I did mention Church Father Augustine. He talked about sin as a privation of the good. So it's this idea that sin doesn't exist in itself. It's only an evil aspect twisting the good, twisting what already exists, what is out there. And so if that doesn't make sense, let me try to give an example of it. An example of it would be pornography. So God has given us a good sex drive. God has given us a good desire for connection with other humans. And yet pornography exploits vulnerable people and exists, though, because of a good reason, but it's been twisted. So you see how that's an evil that can exist in the world, that does exist in the world. But St. Augustine would say it's simply a privation. It's an absence of the good. It's a twisting of the good. You see, nothing about sin is its own. It's kind of unoriginal, as I've heard some people say. It's kind of like a parasite tapping an uninvited host for sustenance. Because sin does not build shalom, it vandalizes it. It's kind of like a leech. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. There must be something good first before it can be spoiled. So sin is this parasite, a vandal, a despoiler of God's good shalom, kind of like a housebreaker. No wonder God is grieved by it. And although we can describe or define sin in many ways, principle number one in your notes is this. To sum it up, sin is a grave and grievous predator impacting every aspect of God's good creation. Sin is a grave and grievous predator impacting every aspect of God's good creation. This is why God is so against sin. I grew up thinking that God is offended by sin because God is holy. And so sin is kind of like this thing that God is allergic to. And it took me a while before I grew in my faith. And I realized that God is not like a, you know, a fragile God. God is not like, uh-oh, there is sin, you know, toxic, toxic, run away. No, God's holiness is inextricably linked to God's deep goodness and love. And so sin is grievous because it goes against God's love and God's desire for deep goodness. So sin is not like a food allergy or an intolerance that renders God angry and in a kerfuffle. It's because sin disrupts what is good and beautiful and harmonious and loving in our world. Remember, God's wrath and God's love, they're not like two separate things. The wrath of God is the outrage of God 
against everything that breathes and assaults what God has made, and by extension, who God is. For example, sexism and racism. We could kind of pull like any isms out of the closet. I'm pulling these two out because Plantinga mentioned them. He mentioned that both of these show contempt for various human persons, but also for the mind of God, as God savors and wants not only humankind, but also human kinds. You see that? I love that about Plantinga. His book, Kind of Charming, The Breviary of Evil, <laughs> I read it this week. It was a little hard to read. There are some good nuggets in there. He writes about sin in a way that enables you to keep going, even though it's so weighty. So we know that sin is hard, it's heavy, it's hurtful. Each of our lives have been deeply impacted by it. Sometimes we speak up to say what we've experienced. Me too, we say. There have been so many relationships disrupted, connections broken, abuse perpetuated, violence inflicted. And I think perhaps that's why it can be hard to admit when we are at fault in little and big ways. In my own family, I have two children who will remain unnamed, both boys. One of them has a hard time admitting fault because he feels that if he admits he's wrong, it's letting what his brother did off the hook. So he doesn't want to admit when he's wrong because his brother hurt him. And the truth is that there's plenty of hurt to go around. We've hurt people and we are hurt people. Even our wonderful church that we love, which is filled with good people, which cares so much about being emotionally and spiritually healthy and sees that as part of our discipleship to Jesus, we ourselves went through a church split over 10 years ago. We hurt people and we were hurt. Judging from our earlier list of apologies, individual sin is hard to admit, but it's even harder to admit corporate sin. Now, Israel's prophets, they called out the people of God for individual sins, but more often than not, they talked about corporate sins, those that are woven in the fabric of society that we exist in that we often don't see from our own perspective. So if you read the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah, you'll see this over and over as the prophets speak to Israel as a people group. You have cheated the poor. You have failed to care for the foreigner and the widow. You have swapped other violent, great gods of the nations around you instead of the worship of the one true God. You could practically pick any scripture from the prophets at random. Just like put your finger into the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah and it will pop out to you. I did that with Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.22 came out, which says this, though you wash yourself with lie, the prophet is speaking, and use much soap. The stain of your sin is still before me, says the Lord God. Now, if you're going to read it out of context like we just did, it would seem like it's talking to a person, right? But it's actually speaking to an entire political and social group of people. It's a corporate you. It's hard for us to admit individual sin. It's even harder for us to admit corporate sin. And yet scripture calls out both. Some of you may know Wellspring is part of a family of churches, a denomination known as the Evangelical Covenant Church. And we got to meet last week for our 135th annual conference. It's where a bunch of new ordinances were able to be ordained, which was exciting. Um, it's where some business was done. 
And it's also where we made a historic for us vote, where collectively we repudiated, we voted to repudiate the doctrine of discovery, which is the theological justification spearheaded by the Pope and other Christian leaders that allowed the discovery and domination of European Christians of lands already inhabited by indigenous peoples. We voted to repudiate this theological idea that caused so much harm. And as we voted, we acknowledged the damage done to indigenous peoples and we lamented the church's complicity in the continuing effects of that history. And some people thought it was noteworthy that we voted on this resolution one day after the remains of 751 children in unmarked graves were unearthed from a former Indian residential school in Saskatchewan, Canada, where native people, native children were forcibly removed from their families and forced to go to these religious institutions with the goal of assimilating them. The church's doctrine of discovery is what made horrific abuses like this to the indigenous communities in the Americas possible, including the forced removal of thousands of indigenous children in our own lands, raised by hundreds of similar boarding schools run by Catholic and Christian denominations. There's much to lament. I have a picture here from the conference of our president, John Wenrick, who came here to Wellspring a couple years ago. He, you can only see his back. He's hugging Reverend T.J. Smith, who is president in the ECC of the Indigenous Ministers Association. They're hugging each other after this resolution was voted on. Friends, it can be hard to admit when we're wrong, our own personal individual sins. It's harder still to own up to our collective sins, the ones that just simply exist in the fabric of our society, those begun long ago that have ripple effects till now. And then there's another category of sin too, not just personal and collective, but there are the hidden ones, the sins we cannot see that are inside of us. You might call them blind spots. The psalmist in Psalm 19 even offers these up to the Lord. Lord, clear me of my unknown sin. There are many sins about myself that I don't know, but there was one that was slowly brought to light. It was that after college, I had this fake Louis Vuitton bag that I got that I really enjoyed, and I used it all the time. Right, I'm a new college graduate, I don't have a lot of funds, I was on a limited budget, and I didn't think I was hurting anybody. I mean, Louis Vuitton has plenty of money, right? Is he gonna mind if I carry my little, like, bag around? I don't think he even lives anymore. <laughs> and so I really enjoyed this bag, and it wasn't until a few years later that I was shocked to discover that a lot of the fake luxury goods in the world, whether it be fake Rolexes or pens or, or bags, sometimes even DVDs, they support organized crime, drug syndicates, sex slavery, human trafficking. What? I had no idea. The reporter Dana Thomas writes in her book, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, of her experience of walking into an assembly plant in Thailand and seeing six or seven children, all under the age of 10, sitting on the floor, assembling leather counterfeit handbags. The owners had broken the children's legs 
and tied the lower leg to their thigh bone so the bones wouldn't mend. They did this because the children said they wanted to go out and play. I didn't know things like this happened when I bought my fake bag in a market in the Philippines. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know about the, the forced separation of indigenous children from their families, how it went all the way up until, what, the 50s? I didn't want to know how churches sponsored these schools, where horrific damage was done. There's so much that I just don't want to feel the weight of because it is too much. And the weight of sin is everywhere because there's no arena of life we can turn to to be free of sin and its effects. I mean, take, for example, something fun, sports. Sports bring so much communal joy to people. It bonds my husband and my sons, and I kind of watch from the outskirts. But sports is full of scandals with doping and cheating and sexual assaults and financial impropriety. And that could probably all happen just like in one team. I won't name any teams. It's because I can't. I don't really know any. <laughs> just read about them online. <laughs> and I won't call out my husband's favorite team. I'll let him talk about that. Right, same thing with our centers of learning and academia. These wonderful places that give so much to the world, they are not immune. They are not free from this parasite. No, there's horrific scandals that break in our schools, in our homes. There's way more child abuse that goes on than we would ever want to know about in our country. More neglect than we would ever like to admit. And don't get me started on church, because scripture and theology can be twisted to support powers that are actually anti-God and anti-people. Pastors, when they go bad, can be the worst predators of all. Religiosity can twist the good news of God into a personal form of piety that is utterly disconnected from creation's goodness, from loving your neighbor. Like the woman landowner moved to tears over her inability to go to mass and receive communion, but not noticing the children dying in her fields from overwork. Maybe the only thing worse than religious people and institutions when we go bad is politics and politicians. I'm sure right now off the top of your head, you could think of a dozen things the party you don't like has done. Maybe if you had to, a few things your own party has done that are wrong. There is no untouched place in all the world where sin has not been. Even our beautiful pristine lakes and forests are heating up. The waters are rising whatever reason you think might be for it. Bad stuff is happening all around the world. Surely we can say with the Apostle Paul, woe is me. Given the continual wars, genocides, acts of terror, fear, violence, injustice, the destruction of our globe, exploitation of creation and the poor and vulnerable, child labor trafficking, intimate partner abuse, spouse abuse, child abuse, you name it, the gravity of sin is so big and so huge, we don't want to feel the weight of it, much less in our own lives that we perpetuate. The weight of sin is so great that no one can lift it off humanity but God. The price of sin too high that no one can pay it but God. And amongst all the accumulated mistakes were made and wrongs were done and we regret what happened in the world, God does the unthinkable. God steps up to take responsibility. God takes the blame. 
even though God is the one perfect one. God in Jesus becomes sin for us, pays the wage of sin, death for us. It's so unbelievable. It's so amazing. Second Corinthians says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God goes to that godless forsaken place, takes the blame, dies, so we can be alive. We can be free and we can be healed. First Peter says this, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. This is good news, very good news. Although the problem of sin is worse than we might assume, the gift of God's cross is better than we can imagine. As we close, number two in your notes, principle number two. At the cross, Jesus interposes God's own life to free, heal, and bring new life to every place of death. At the cross, Jesus interposes God's own life to free, heal, and bring new life to every place of death. So friends, today, whatever you are facing, whatever you have done, the crucified Jesus holds the keys of life. God's new reality is in reach for you. And God invites you to be part of the work of healing and renewing and mending. We are to be agents of reconciliation, working to repair the fabric of creation where sin has torn it. So today, friends, we can feel joy. We can feel relief. Jesus paid it all. Sin does not have the first word in your life, nor does it have the last word when God is part of your story. We began our time together in the Word today with a text with the Apostle Paul who linked together the reason for Christ's death with our sins. Christ died for our sins. I want to close with this text also from Paul, from his letter to the Christians in Rome this time. He says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death ha no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, you and I are alive in Christ. We are invited to be part of the life, the healing, the mending, the reworking that God is doing in our world. As many know, I grew up, um, I grew up a child of pastor kids as a missionary kid. And I grew up in a branch of the church that frowned on tattoos. Don't tell them I have a couple now. <laughs> but I remember I would hear Christians in leadership when I was growing up, they'd look at people with tattoos and they'd say, they have a past. Mm, they have a past. And I'm thinking, you know, humanity has a past too, but it's not just filled up with wars and genocides and Ponzi schemes. It also includes saints and hospices and relief agencies. 
laws for gleaners, cities of refuge, peacemakers, wonderful bursts of hospitality, martyrs, civil rights activists, adoption agencies, foster parents, evil pa rolls across the ages, but so does good. Good, the very good of God's creation has its own momentum. As pervasive and as heavy as sin is, it could not stop even the Montgomery bus boycott with Rosa Parks. It could not stop segregation. It cannot stop the good things of God happening right now in Honolulu, in our island, in our country, and in our world. Sin is a power that creation is caught in, but it is not all-powerful. It cannot stop the good things of God any more than the mass or gravity of a planet can stop the pervasive pull of a black hole. Sin cannot stop the growing kingdom of God, no matter how bleak it looks, any more than a shooting star can stop the sunrise. So rejoice and be thankful. Jesus has died for your sins. Let that move you to turn to Jesus, to turn away from the cheap and alluring nothingness of sin. Let it move you to the biblical version of repentance, being renewed. The powers over you are broken. The kingdom that puts right is growing and you can be part of it. Let's pray. As we move into an attitude of prayer, friends, here in person and those listening online. Please know that you are held in God's gracious and loving intention, whether you know yourself to be a sinner or not, whether you can admit what you've done or not. God's loving good surrounds you and invites you to take notice. For those of you in this room and you're feeling some of the weight of sin in your life, Maybe it's an individual sin. Maybe it's a corporate sin you're part of. Maybe it's even something that you've been blind to but, or you don't see it's hidden, but God is bringing to your attention. I just want to give you a moment to talk to God about that. See God's loving face and talk to God about what is bubbling up in you. Let's take a minute for that. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us near to yourself. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for speaking to us, highlighting where there is wrong and where there can be right, where we need healing and where we need more freedom from Jesus' life. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins, and that fills us with joy that you would do that for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.